Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we get into God's word for this morning. Oh Lord, as we've just sung, whatever you ordain is right. So we confess once again that we trust you. And we confess even now that we trust whatever your word says right now for us is right. So we ask you to use your word in this time right now to convict us, correct us, to change us, so we will look more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. In the year 2008, then Nebraska Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit. And filing a lawsuit is pretty normal, especially in a country like ours. It happens a lot, but the difference here is that this lawsuit was filed against God. Chambers was seeking a permanent injunction against God's harmful activities, as he put it. Here's part of what he said in this statement. He said, the defendant, talking about God, directly and proximately has caused fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, Terrifying tornadoes, pestilential plagues, can at least give them credit for alliteration all the way throughout, ferocious famines, devastating droughts, genocidal wars, birth defects, and the like. The court initially dismissed the suit because God could not be properly notified of the suit itself since God didn't have a fixed address. The senator responded by saying that since God is omniscient, he should know that he should be having his day in court. He should show up. Now, obviously, the case was eventually thrown out, but Chambers did have his, his day in court, although the records show that God did not show up for the court hearing that day. Now, that sounds really ridiculous and silly, who would want to do something like that? Who would think to put God on trial? But is it all that silly? Have you put God on trial this year in some way? Have you interrogated him for not providing that job for you, for example, or that promotion or that home? Have you questioned his wisdom for the things that he has given you? for the trials he's allowed in your life over this past year, for the changes that he's allowed in your life, or even for the changes he's allowing in our church. You put God on trial for those things. Maybe we've questioned God's work in our lives, but maybe some of us have also questioned God and his character. Is he really good? Is he really for us? Does he really love us? And trials of any kind can have the tendency to cloud our view of God and make it hard to see him rightly for who he is. As we approach the end of this year, it's good and right for us to focus anew on who God says that he is, his character, his nature, what he's like, and what that should mean for us. So please meet me in the book of Exodus if you have not turned there already. We'll be in Exodus chapter 34 for our time together in God's word today. And if you're using the Bibles provided around you, that's on page 74. And we'll work our way up to Exodus 34, but it's a little bit of background context for this very important book in the Bible, and also important book for God's people. And the Exodus is about God delivering his people through his chosen prophet, Moses. Because God's people were in slavery in Egypt. And God eventually defeated the Pharaoh using the ten plagues to do it, ending with the last plague, the death of the firstborn, otherwise known as the Passover. And Moses was able to lead God's people through the Red Sea on dry ground. 
And God's people were led to Mount Sinai. And that's where the Lord received or the Lord gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. But apparently, when Moses was away with the Lord, he took far too long. God's people grew impatient. They wanted to be led out. They wanted to be fully delivered. They said, who's going to lead us out? And they demanded that Aaron, who was Moses' spokesperson, that he would have something made for them. Any children in the room? Remember this story. What did the people demand that Aaron would have made for the people? In the back? An idol, yes, a specific one. Anybody more specific than that? A golden calf. They said, make this golden calf for us so that this golden calf can go before us and lead us out. And when they made it, they said, this is the God that rescued us out of Egypt. It should be noted that Aaron didn't put up much of a fight with their request. He was like, all right, sure, that sounds good to me. Let's just put all the gold together and let's make this calf. What's interesting here is that God's people broke God's law while Moses was still receiving God's law. So God knew exactly what law they needed. The Lord told Moses that he should go down from the mountain because something's happening down there. You need to go see about your people. And Moses was upset for obvious reasons. He regretted the fact that he was leading them. And he knew that the people were going to be judged for their great sin. And then Moses went back to the Lord to talk to God, and he wanted to intercede for them. He said, Lord, have mercy on them. But God told Moses that he would inflict plagues on them, which he did, which is Exodus chapter 32. And God said the people were to continue to go out, but he would not go with them because they were stiff-necked people. And then Moses pleaded to the Lord again on their behalf. Forgive them, Lord. Please go with us, he said. And then in Exodus 33, he asked the Lord to show him his glory. But no one can see God's glory because he's too holy, as we've already talked about. But God told Moses that he would let his glory go before him. He would not see his face. He would only see his back. And then in Exodus 34, God tells Moses to get two tablets of stone and reissues this same covenant that God's people broke with them again. But not before he would show Moses his glory and his goodness. With all that in mind, I'm going to read Exodus 34. I'm going to start at verse 1, although our text will be focusing on verses 5 through 9. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Talk about that later. Moses got upset. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain, because they would all die if they were exposed to the glory of the Lord. Back to verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hands two tablets of stones. Now for our text, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. You're taking notes this morning. We'll approach this text by asking and answering two questions. First question that we're going to ask and answer with God's help is what is the Lord like? What is the Lord like? Second question, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? The first question, what is the Lord like? The Lord answers it in our text. And in short, the answer is the following. He is gracious and merciful. Look again at verse 5 of our passage. It says, The Lord came down and stood with Moses, and he proclaims his name, the Lord. In Exodus 3, when the Lord first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses asked the Lord, What is your name? Does anybody remember the answer to that question? What did the Lord say when when Moses asked his name? Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. I am the great I am. I always was. I always will be. And by now, Moses not only knew God's name, he saw his works, right? Right? He saw what Moses did or what the Lord did in in freeing the people out of Egypt. He saw the plagues. He saw the Lord's acts. But even now, he's asking to see the Lord's glory. But remember what happens here before this passage. God's people already broke God's law. Moses saw it. He was upset about the fact that that God's law was broken. And he broke the tablets of stone out of his anger. That was just a picture of what God's people had already done. God's people had already broken the covenant that the Lord was making with them. And the Lord told Moses to meet with him on this same mountain with two tablets of stone because he was going to reestablish this same covenant. Another example of the Lord going before his people. He was going to forgive them. He was going to be merciful to them even though they didn't deserve it, like we don't. And the Lord was even merciful to Moses by telling him, I will only allow you to see my back. Because all of the glory of the Lord would consume Moses as well. It would consume him in an instant, because God is too holy. That's why no one has ever seen the face of God. So he said, Moses, go up to a mountain, and I will also hide you in the cleft of a rock. And then when my glory is ready to pass before you, I will uncover your eyes, but you will still only be able to see my back. Then the Lord proclaims his glory in verse 6, and he starts by saying, the Lord, the Lord. He starts with his name. There is glory found in the name of the Lord. Some commentators even think that that in verse 6 and 7, as the Lord is explaining and declaring this to Moses, that he was even singing over him in doing so, singing his glory and his goodness over Moses. And what was this song called? I'm gracious and merciful. Some of us might find it uh, a, a little bit strange that this is the way that the Lord decided to describe himself to Moses. Like the Lord is holy, right? Why didn't he just tell Moses that he's holy? Well, if the Lord were holy, which is true, but not merciful and gracious, then why would he speak to Moses in the first place? He wouldn't be wasting his time on him. Why would he reissue his covenant that his people broke with them? He wouldn't. But he is merciful and gracious, which is why he hears our cries as well, beloved. God is merciful, meaning he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. 
He, though he has all power, he looks on us with, pe- with pity. He knows our frame. He knows we are dust. But he's also gracious, meaning that he shows us his good favor. In those terms, merciful and gracious basically serves as the two lanes that describes or explains everything else that comes in these verses. So God is slow to anger. Why? Because he's merciful and he's gracious. Therefore, he's patient with us. God is abounding and steadfast, never-ending love for us. Why? Because he's gracious, because he's merciful. And his love is like a well that never runs dry for his people. But I wonder how you would describe God this morning. Would you describe God as this cosmic watchmaker who made us and just left us to ourselves to figure it out? Or is God to you like a distant father who shows up on holidays, perhaps, but ordinarily you can't really reach him? Do you view God as giving you a stern look with folded arms? Or is God looking at you with love, with outstretched arms toward you? Our view of God matters. Because in our lives, it changes everything for us. And God is so good to us that he doesn't want us to assume who he is and how he is which is why he tells us, just like he told Moses, clearly who he is. And he wants this knowledge of him to to affect every single area of our life. And that's why Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 specifically, are the most referenced verses in the entire Bible. Over and over and over and over again. It's like on replay and on repeat. God's people are recalling what the Lord declared to Moses And saying that back to the Lord in prayer, through times of lament, through times of of pain, through times of joy and even of hope. Remembering God's character, that he's merciful, that he's gracious. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, and he shows us his favor. I'm going to go over several of these references in the scriptures And I encourage you maybe to write some of them down and go over them later for yourselves. Because over and over and over again, we see in God's word that he is gracious and that he is merciful. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Or Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Or Joel chapter 2, verse 13 Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Or Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will have compassion on us. Or even Jonah. Yes, Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah, right? Jonah did not want to do what God told him to do. He did not want to go to the people of Tarshish. Why? Because he tells God, I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And all throughout the Psalms, Psalm 23, it ends in saying, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me for all the days of my life. Psalm 25, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of 
old, or Psalm 86. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Or verse 15 of that same chapter. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 106, for for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Psalm 108, I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens and your faithfulness reaches the clouds. Psalm 111, he has called his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Psalm 112, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Psalm 116, verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lamentations 3, for the Lord will not cast us off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Nehemiah chapter 9, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Brothers and sisters, that's not even the whole list. Behold our God, for he is gracious and merciful to his people, and he has not changed at all. Now, someone might be thinking, what about the New Testament, though? I'm glad you asked. In the book of James, in chapter 5, there's a really interesting verse there where James is talking about Christians persevering or God's people persevering and enduring through trials. And he uses Job as an example. James 5, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast under trial. You've heard the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, you know the story of Job, right? You know what happened to Job. Most of us would not describe Job's story in those terms. Most of us, when we think of Job, we think, poor Job. We are glad it worked out for him in the end, but we don't necessarily want to sign up for that, do we? And yet it says, you remember the story of Job. What should we learn from the story of Job? That God is compassionate and merciful. Wow. That, brothers and sisters, should correct how we view Scripture and how we view our suffering. Maybe a good practice for us sometime, even today, is to reflect on a time in our lives when we experienced trials and sufferings. But when we looked hard enough and we found the Lord to be gracious and merciful to us, even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of that trial, because I think according to God's word, we will find it if we look hard enough for it. But what about verse 7 of Exodus chapter 34? You might be thinking, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But what about the rest of verse 7? Let's have a look at it again. That he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, it should be noted here that most of the references that I've named from Exodus 34, 6, and 7, they emphasize God's grace and mercy, right? The fact that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But that's not to the exclusion of verse 7. 
they're including that in it. So saying God is gracious and merciful is kind of like shorthand. And I think we might understand this from Numbers chapter uh, 6, for example, where you have the prayer of grace and peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you peace. Well, the New Testament authors, like Paul, they often use the phrase grace and peace, which is basically shorthand for Numbers 6, 24 and 25. They have the same thing in mind. They're just shortening it. And I think that that's what's going on here. This is not like a cover-up. Let's try to skip verse 7. No, they're saying that God is gracious and merciful, and that includes the fact that he will not clear the guilty. So in other words, God's mercy and grace are not at odds with him judging wickedness. In fact, he does all of the above. That's why he says, the Lord, the Lord. He was, in other words, saying, there is no God like me. No one else can do all of this. The gods that the Egyptians want, they have to be specialized. I can do all things, and I do all things well. And think about it. The Lord does show grace and mercy, but also judge the guilty. He did that in Exodus. He judged Pharaoh and his enemies, right? He sent the death angel to judge the people of Egypt. But everybody who had blood on the doorposts of their homes, he passed over them in that judgment. And God is willing to pass over us who have our lives covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And God led his people through the Red Sea on dry ground. But what happened to his enemies? Which doesn't often appear in children's books, right? They were swallowed up in judgment. And the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross swallowed the judgment of God so that we who put faith in him would walk freely to the Lord on dry ground. So again, this should help us as we read the scriptures because if we see a passage where God is judging sinners and he is judging people in God's word, that's a result of him having already been patient with his people. He's not like throwing a temper tantrum in a store because he didn't get what he wants. He is holy and just. That means we need to look harder to find evidence of God's grace and mercy, even in those tough passages of Scripture. So even in parts like it says in the rest of verse 7, that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation, right? Like, what does that part mean? It doesn't mean that children are going to be punished for the sins that their parents commit. It doesn't mean that. But it means that parents pass on not only their features to their kids, but we're not careful. We can pass on our sin to our kids. Meaning, just like in this ancient Near East culture where the father's God would be the children's God, the father's job would be the children's job. It's just what you did. We can pass on these sins to our children by teaching them to live in those ways contrary to the Lord, by walking in ways that are contrary to the Lord, and then that gets passed on through generation after generation after generation. But the grace of the Lord is the fact that this cycle of sin can stop through repentance and faith in him. Some of us are evidence of that in this room where we might be the only ones in our family who, are know, who know the Lord and walk with the Lord. Or we are still begging the Lord to save the rest of our family members. But we've decided for that cycle to stop with us because we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But since we can so easily pass these things on to our children, to the next generation, if we're not careful, that's why God commands that his word is taught. That's why he says that children need to be taught God's word. They need to be reminded of it over and over and over again in church. Our kids need the same thing as well. Let's be praying for the parents of our church. Be praying for the families of our church. Be praying for the children of our church. That they would hear God's word with soft ears and hearts. That they would turn to him and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If we think about this pattern of sin, third and fourth generation, as it says in Exodus 34, verse 7, remember the Bible also teaches that we've inherited sin from our first parents, right? From Adam and Eve. So that's our default setting. We are born into sin. We have sin natures. And when it comes to sin, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. We all sin and we all have fallen short of God's glory. And when God says he will not clear the guilty, that includes all of us. We are all guilty. We are all guilty of sin against this gracious and merciful God. We have all gone our own way. We have all gone astray. And yet the Bible teaches that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we, through faith in him, could become the righteousness of God. How can God be gracious and merciful but also not clear the guilty? The answer is on the cross where the sinless Lamb of God took on the sin of the world, where he was buried in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, where he was risen on the third day, where he is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, still calling people to turn from their sins and turn towards him even today. So that even today, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive not the wrath that you deserve for your sins, but you will receive grace and mercy in the forgiveness of your sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive his rest. You will receive eternal life that starts now and endures forever and ever and ever. And friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is why other gods just won't do. They're not a substitute. This is why atheism and agnosticism will not do. It's not a substitute. That's why merely being true to ourselves will not do. It is not enough. There are only two ways to live. We can follow the one true God or we can oppose the one true God. Those are the only options. Following him leads to eternal rest, but opposing him leads to eternal judgment. I urge you to consider that and give your life to Jesus even today. What better thing to do on the last day of this year but to turn to the Lord Jesus by faith? Brothers and sisters, there is truly no one like our God. Amen? And nothing like our God. But for us, that's why the idols of our hearts will not do. They are not a good substitute. Those things that we run to when we're feeling burdened and weary, they are not good enough. They will not uphold us. They will not satisfy us. They will not give us rest. They will not give us peace because they were never meant to do those things. Kids and teens in the room, even as you have your own sets of trials and issues that come up in your life, I urge you to make a habit of going to God first when you encounter those things. It'll be a good habit to start instilling in your life, even as you experience maybe smaller trials than the adults around you might experience. That reflex to say, I'm going to go to the Lord about this. I'm not going to just play video games when I feel down. Or I'm not just going to isolate myself in my room when I'm upset. I'm going to go to God. It'll be a good practice to build into your lives. Many of us still struggle. Beloved, place not just some of your hope in the Lord, but place every single bit of your hope in the Lord because he is gracious and merciful. And that's why Moses' response is appropriate, which leads to question number two. Question one, what is the Lord like? He is gracious and merciful. Question number two, what does this mean for us? The two-part answer. First of all, it means that he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. Look again at verse 8, Exodus 34. Because Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now in Exodus 33, 
It says that Moses was already hidden in the cleft of the rock. He was already out of harm's way. God was already protecting him so that all of his glory wouldn't consume Moses as it should have. And yet already away and tucked away and in hiding, Moses bows his head and worships. Try to picture that. He got down as low as he could to demonstrate that he's like dust before the God of the heavens. And that's a picture of what worship should look like when we see the glory of the Lord. Now, that word worship means a lot of different things in God's word. And we're called to worship the Lord in a lot of different ways in our lives, right? Through our singing, through our obedience, through our giving, through our hearing and doing God's word. All of our lives are meant to be worship or acts of worship towards the Lord, right? But in Exodus 34, Moses responds to the glory of the Lord by bowing down and getting as low as he could. So how are you responding to the Lord today? I mean, even think about this, even in our society, there's just certain things that we do without thinking when we're in the presence of someone important or something important that's happening, right? So when you enter a courtroom, you're awaiting the moment that the the bailiff will step out and he'll say, all rise. And then everyone does what? They stand up while the judge enters out of respect. But also understanding that there's a difference between this judge and everybody else. There's an authority that this judge has that no one else in this room has at this moment. Or even think about weddings, right? When the bride finally enters and everybody stands up and they stare at her and they marvel at her beauty, right? That happens at weddings. Why? Because even though husbands sometimes want to argue about it, it's really not about you. It's about her, right? She's the focus. But brothers and sisters, how are you responding to the Lord? Are you beholding him and recognizing him for who he truly is? Are you focusing on him? Do you sing songs to him and hear his words, but yet in your heart you're left unmoved, unfazed? Does your heart really say, I'm not that impressed? Like someone who walks into a courtroom, the, ju- the bailiff says, all rise, and you refuse to stand. Or the bride enters, about to go down the aisle, and you're the only one that sits. Or worse yet, you show up to the wedding in your own white dress, trying to outdo the bride and her beauty. Right? We can sometimes try to do those things with the Lord. Where we gather, where we Here's his word being preached where we sing songs to him, but inwardly we're like, ah, when's this going to be over? Or we want to meet with the Lord in his word or as we gather, and yet really we're thinking, what's in it for us? What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? Sometimes when we're not careful, we can be just like those disciples, can't we? who walked with the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet they argued with each other about who's going to be the greatest, with the only one that was great, and they were arguing about their own greatness. But our glory can't compete with the glory of the Lord. And that's why Moses got out of the way when he saw the glory of the Lord. He's saying that there's a difference between this God and me. The only thing I should do right now is bow down in reverence to to him. Because he is good, he is holy, he is just, he is faithful, he is gracious, he is merciful. And though we can be those things some of the time, only God is all of that all of the time. So our entire lives should be lived as an act of worship to him and his glory. 
So sometimes before the day ends, if you have the time, or even early tomorrow, I encourage you to sit and recall all the reasons why we should worship the Lord. What he's done, what he's promised, what he said he will do. Find ways to behold him. Make a list if you need to. And then make a list and compare that with the glory of the world or even the glory that you sometimes seek after. You'll see that there's an imbalance there because we cannot compete with his glory. And then respond to him in worship and obedience. But Moses was not merely impressed. He was humbled to the dirt. But he also went before the Lord on behalf of his people. What's the second answer to the question? What does it mean? It means that we should, that he is worthy of our worship. Second answer to that second question. It means that we need a mediator. Look at verse 9. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Now remember, God's people were clearly out of step with his word. And Moses was so upset that they strayed so far from his word. And the Bible says in Exodus 32 that Moses was so mad, he broke the tablets of stone, he got the gold that they used to make the golden calf, and he grinded it up and he made them drink it. Like, he was very upset. You might want to read that later. It's interesting. But why was he so mad? Because they not only made a golden calf, they said, this is the God that's led us out of Egypt. Let's worship this God. That's silly and sinful, isn't it? But so is idolatry. And idolatry is when we put other people or things in the place of God and going to them for our peace and security and comfort and rest and even salvation. So ascribing glory to that spouse or that job or that person or that status symbol, whatever it is. That's why God clearly says we need to keep ourselves from idols. But think about the golden calf. If you could picture it in the middle of this room right now, what could it actually do? Nothing. It just sits and it looks. It's dumb, meaning it doesn't talk. It's mute. It doesn't hear. It doesn't respond to you. It cannot help you at all. And yet that's what God's people turn to when they want it some rest, or some help. Now, apply that same logic and think about your own idol, whatever it is. Picture it in the middle of a room, of this room. What can it do for you? Ultimately, nothing. What can it offer you? Ultimately, nothing. What kind of rest can it give to you? Ultimately, none. Can it save you? No, it cannot. Our idols always overpromise and they always, always underdeliver. So Moses' anger was a good anger to have. Although he shouldn't have responded in the way he did. Let's just keep that clear. But yet, with the glory of the Lord in full display, Moses bows down and he worships. And then he calls out to the Lord on behalf of those same people who went astray again. And isn't the language striking in verse 9 where he says, Lord, pardon our iniquity. Forgive us of our sin. Now, maybe Moses was including himself for the whole golden calf, grind it up and pour it into people's mouths incident. Maybe he was including himself in that. Maybe that's why he was saying our. But I think he was also owning the people's sin by becoming their mediator. Doesn't that sound familiar to us? And if you read the rest of Exodus, you'll see that the Lord actually does listen to Moses. And when the people eventually start to go out, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the Lord going out before them, it wasn't just with Moses anymore. The Lord went out with 
all of God's people, even though they fell so far from God's grace. And the Lord displayed his grace and mercy by forgiving their sins, by going before them, by going before them in the tabernacle, and by giving them this constant uh, reminder of his presence. And that word tabernacle should remind us of something else that we heard in this morning. In the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talked about here, this greater Moses, this greater mediator, where it says in, first, in John chapter 1, 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelled with us. And we have seen his glory, John says. The glory that went before Moses, but he had to be hid in a cleft of a rock in order to see it. The glory of the Lord that led Moses to ask for mercy on behalf of God's people, even though they sinned once again. The glory that proclaimed that grace, mercy, love, and the justice of God was in his nature. Moses only got a glimpse of that. John says we have seen it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Moses gave the law to God's people. But Jesus Christ gave grace and truth to God's people. That's verse 17 of John chapter 1. And then no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The Apostle Paul later says in 2 Corinthians 4, we have seen the glory of God in the very face of Jesus Christ. How would that be possible with our sin? Only because Jesus died and rose for us. So we can receive his salvation. So we can have a greater mediator for our sins because we need it. So that we can actually behold God and not be consumed. And when we behold God, we see that he is glorious. He's glorious few points of application as we close. God's people have used these verses to talk about God throughout the ages and to remember them and use these verses as the lenses or the lanes of interpreting God's word, of interpreting our world, of seeing God for who he actually is. Seeing that he is gracious and merciful. Seeing that therefore we should worship him that therefore we do need a mediator to speak on our behalf. But we have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a few applications for us. One, remember God's grace and mercy as you read God's word. Remember his grace and mercy. When you get to a hard passage, remember he's gracious and merciful. And maybe you don't see it, but look closely. Look around the context, not just in that chapter. See where God has been gracious and merciful because he has been gracious and merciful. Secondly, remember God's grace and mercy as you experience trials and suffering. 2024, you will have trouble. I'm no prophet, but I can guarantee it. How will you interpret it, beloved? How will you respond? How will you view God in the midst of it? Remember that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that even means as you experience trials this year, if you are in Christ, he's not punishing you. He's punished Christ for your sin already. He is working that trial in your life for his glory and for your good somehow, some way, He's going to do it. Remember that. He's gracious and merciful. Thirdly, remember God's grace and mercy as you go to him in prayer. We have direct access to the Lord right now. Don't shy away from that. Even if you're struggling right now, even if you're straying right now in your heart, go directly to him. Cast every care that you have on him because he cares for you. And fourthly, remember God's grace and mercy as you strive for holiness. 
Now, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and God's people should be, right? If we try to do that in our own strength, we're going to fail as quickly as those Israelites built a golden calf. Not going to work out. We try to do that in our own strength. And that means we need God's help to be godly. We need the Holy Spirit to be holy. We need Christ in order to be Christ-like. And we need the church to continue to walk with him. Let's not lose sight of that. If you're struggling today with sin, confess it and repent to him. He's gracious and merciful. He will forgive you. He will lift you up. And as you stray or or as you're struggling with sin and and you're fighting for holiness and righteousness, that's a good fight to have. But make sure that you're not trying to just stop doing something. Make sure that you start and you continue to behold God in all of his glory and his grace. You hear his word preached as you read his word, as you gather with God's people. Behold him for who he is. When you're tempted this next year to doubt God's goodness, remember that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love for his Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Because if you didn't reveal yourself to us, we would have no idea of who you are. We would interpret who you are based on our own experiences or our own lenses. God, we thank you for being gracious and merciful. Lord, please help us to not just understand that that's true, but to live completely, freely like that is true, because it is. Oh, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.